I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. With authors Lindy West, Jonathan Lethem, and Emma Straub. With music from Blitz and Trapper and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he's doubling down and letting it ride, Luke Burbank! Wow, thank you, Jason. Thank you, everybody here at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. This is our annual Wordstock show. This program is coming to you as part of the Wordstock Festival here in Portland, and our theme this hour is Rolling the Dice, because we're going to be talking to a number of authors about all the different sort of chances that we take in life, and... I will just admit here at the top of the show that I am a person who is a fan of the games of chance, that is to say gambling, which is not something that you typically admit in polite public radio company, but it's the truth. I love gambling, and it's not even my fault. I blame it on the Seattle Public School District. Uh, Here's why. When I was a kid growing up, I didn't know anything about cards or gambling or betting or that kind of stuff until I was a senior at Nathan Hale High School in Seattle, and and specifically until I went to the senior prom because the administrators of the school became worried that after the prom, we kids were all going to go crazy, drink, drug, do all kinds of wild stuff. And so they thought, and a lot of schools do this actually, they thought to keep us safe, they would create an event after the prom for us to go to where we would be under adult supervision but still having fun. And the event they came up with was to put us in buses and take us to a casino that had been closed down for the night, (laughs) give us stacks of fake money, Martinelli's sparkling cider in champagne flutes and turn us loose. It was and remains 
the greatest six hours of my life. Because we were in an actual casino. We had this pretend money. The dealers of the various games were all our actual teachers from the high school. Like, Mr. Case, the guy that taught racket sports, was also the blackjack dealer and was showing us how to play the game. And even though the money was pretend, at the end of the night, there was an auction for some real stuff. Like, I remember there was a CD player, there was a mountain bike, there was a bunch of cool stuff. And you could buy this stuff with the pretend money. I'm not Paul Krugman, but what I understand about economics is that when you can buy real stuff with pretend money, it's not pretend money anymore. And things got really real really fast in that casino. You, you had people pooling their money with the one person they thought was lucky. There was like honors English kids cutting deals with the remedial Spanish kids. There was essentially a series of illegal underage gambling rings going on at the casino. And looking back on it as an adult, I realized they would have been so much better off turning us loose in the woods for a kegger, which was the original plan. Whatever they were protecting us from, this was so much worse. So it's the end of the night, and it's basically down to me and one other kid for who has the most pretend money. He has like $15 million. I have $10 million. And I know that I have to have the most money if I want to get the CD player. This tells you how long ago it was. That was hot technology at the time. So it's the final hand, and I put $5 million up, and Mr. Case is dealing out the cards. My cards come, and I get a 16. It's the worst possible hand you can get in blackjack. If you don't play blackjack, I'll explain it. Basically, 16 is not usually enough to win, but if you take one more card, you almost always go over 21, and you lose. So you're sort of screwed either way. And I didn't know what to do, and Mr. Case looked at me, and he said some sage advice that I have carried through life with me. He said, always or never, Burbank. And that means, in terms of blackjack, you got to decide if you're always going to hit on 16 or never hit on 16. You have the same chance either way, but what's going to make you crazy is if you sometimes hit and you sometimes stay. You'll always be doing the wrong thing. And you have to just decide on one because even when you're losing, you can take some comfort in feeling like you live by some kind of code. <laughs> Which really feels like that might be a good life lesson, just generally. Figure out what you're an always on and a never on, and then just stick to that so at least you know that you have a framework for your life. So I decided in that moment I was going to be an always. Yeah. Took the hit. Yeah. Thank you. You don't know how this story ends. Guy turns the card over, and in what would be foreshadowing for the rest of my gambling career, it was totally a 10. I busted, <laughs> lost the money. But something 
surprising happened and taught me another lesson that night at the Skyway Bowl and Casino, which is that you never know how things are going to turn out. So I didn't have enough pretend money to buy any of the cool stuff I wanted. There was only one thing left for me to buy, and it was a gift certificate to a restaurant called the Wedgwood Broiler, which was by the high school and in my mind at the time was very much an old person restaurant. And so I got this gift certificate, and I didn't know what to do, so I took the one old person I knew, which was my grandma, and we went and we got lunch. And like, not that much happened, we just made small talk or whatever for a couple of hours, but um, she passed away recently, and I have to say that I think about that lunch a lot because that was probably the most time we spent together one-on-one, kind of in that setting, like just the two of us. And I don't know what those kids did with the CD player or the mountain bike. I assume sold them on the black market to feed their gambling addiction, (laughs) which we all had leaving that casino that night. But I definitely feel like I got the best prize out of that deal. And so if... If for that reason alone, I feel like I have to actually say thanks to the Seattle Public School System, even though Children's Casino Night is a terrible, terrible idea. All right, let's get our first guest out here. We are talking about rolling the dice this week on Livewire, about taking chances, and really, what is more risky than getting married and having kids. You never know exactly how it's gonna turn out. Relationships fray, family pets go missing, kids do sneaky things when they think their parents aren't around. It is one big crapshoot, really. A crapshoot that Emma Straub describes perfectly in her latest book, Modern Lovers. The story follows a group of friends who go from playing music together in college to trying to navigate real adult life in Ditmas Park, Brooklyn. Please welcome Emma Straub to Livewire. Emma, welcome to Livewire. I want to talk about your new book in, in just a moment, but I also want to just talk to you a little bit about your career, which I'm really fascinated by. I, I read somewhere that you had your first four novels turned down. From a gambling perspective, does that not sound good? <laughs> well, I, I love it because you realize that your luck was bound to turn at some point. It's oh, extremely yeah. apropos to our theme. Oh, yeah. No, you just gotta, you just gotta keep trying. But, okay, so these were fully written books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that you sent in, and they said, no, thank you. Yeah, they were, they were complete. They weren't good, but they were complete. Uh, you know, I was in my 20s. I had, like, an overabundance of self-confidence. I knew what I wanted my job to be, right? I wanted to be a novelist, and so I thought, well, this is how you do it. You write a novel. Um based on Wuthering Heights set near high school, and there's like a lot of incest. And I don't know, I had a lot of big ideas. <laughs> the execution just wasn't quite there. So you think it was, to so some degree, a function of the books not really being good enough, as opposed to this, how subjective publishing is. Because do you think <laughs> now, as Emma Straub, best-selling author, in fact, The Vacationers, uh, a book you wrote, went to number four on the New York Times bestseller list. So you have like, <laughs> you're now a pretty big deal. 
If you, if you sent those books back in, do you think someone would be like, oh, this is so great? <laughs> no, no, not even, not even like remotely close. Like there was one, one of my really bad books that I wrote in my 20s was, um, there, it was like my attempt at a fantasy novel, which is hard to do. And I thought I was going to like really like switch things up and like do something super cool by naming my two main characters the same thing, which I thought was like... <laughs> really cutting edge and I was like so cool how smart I am and it was like no so confusing that not one person reading could understand who was talking ever for like 300 pages you know I started this interview on your side but now I'm siding with those publishers that turned these down me too, me too. No, they, they were right. I was wrong. They were right. All right, Emma, hold on. We've got to take a very short break, and then I want to talk about uh, your latest book, Modern Lovers. We've got Emma Straub here. This is Livewire Radio coming to you from the Wordstock <laughs> Book Festival in Portland, Oregon. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Luke reminding you that this edition of the Livewire podcast is brought to you by you or a very generous Livewire listener just like you. That's right. This show and this podcast can only happen due to the generous support of our listeners. We call them the League of Extraordinary Listeners, and they are folks who have been making recurring donations each and every month to help keep things going around here. Uh, If you have not had a chance yet to support Livewire and you're listening to my voice right now, maybe it's time to do that. If you head over to livewireradio.org, you can get it done in just a matter of moments. And we've got all kinds of cool thank you gifts for you, depending on the monthly level that you feel comfortable with. So head over to livewireradio.org right now and join our League of Extraordinary Listeners. It would mean the world to us. Welcome back to Livewire Radio, coming to you from the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. My name's Luke Burbank. I am your host. We're coming to you as part of the Wordstock Festival in Portland this week. We've got Emma Straub here. Her uh, latest book is Modern Lovers. For folks who have not had a chance to read it, kind of lay out a little bit of the plot and the people, like what's happening in this book. Sure. So Modern Lovers is about two families who live on the same block in a leafy part of Brooklyn called Ditmas Park. They're old friends and former college bandmates. And uh, basically the book is about what happens when you realize that you're not the cool person in your family anymore. Like these two families both have teenage children who are getting older and having sex and that kind of thing that sometimes happens. You know, smoking cigarettes, bad stuff. Um, But yeah, it's about friendship and marriage and parenthood and music and... Love. I read that you said you didn't want this to just be kind of another Brooklyn book. So then you just put it in a further away part of Brooklyn, Ditmas Park. (laughs) Well, yeah, yes, that is true. Did that achieve the goal? I think so. I think so. what, What I like about this particular neighborhood where the book takes place is that it has all these things that for New Yorkers we find really exotic, like porches and garages and driveways, these things that, t- like, I'm, I'm a native New Yorker, and so for me, those things are so romantic. They're, like, out of a John Hughes movie. Like, I don't, I mean, it's not, 
like real life, but those do those things do exist in certain parts of New York City, like Ditmas Park. And I thought that that might win over some of the readers who might otherwise be put off at the idea of another book about people in Brooklyn. So this book is about a group of friends, and their you know their kids are growing up. And I guess I'm wondering, it, is the message of this book that everybody has to grow up sometime, or that nobody ever really grows up? Oh, God. Uh, both. I'm going to be diplomatic and say both. I think that, for me, I, I was thinking a lot about myself as a teenager, which I'm 36 now, and so in, in some ways that feels very, very long ago, and in other ways it feels very present, and I can still remember so many of those moments so clearly. Um, but now I am a parent. My children are three and nine months, but, but I can already, like, I, I mean, I can see what it's going to feel like to be on the other end of that. And there are certain ways in which it feels like, you know, I, I will, of course, pass the torch, and I do feel like an adult always because I am responsible for two human beings. Um, but I also still feel like the 17-year-old part of me who smoked a lot of Newport Lights. You know, like I... Really good menthols, you guys. I don't know. Maybe people on the West Coast are not as into menthol cigarettes as teenage girls in Brooklyn were, but let me tell you, all you need is a little malt liquor to go with it, and it's super. All the malt liquor is locally sourced here in Portland. <laughs> That's why these people are slightly confused by your anecdote, Emma. Um, I, uh, I wanted to ask you about this band in the book, which a lot of the book revolves around a song that was written by, by the, the friends who are surviving. Their other friend who actually recorded the song kind of became a cult hero. She passed away young. Uh, so first of all, can you tell us the name of the song and can you sing some of the song for us? <laughs> I can sing you the whole song. So, so, so the, the band in the book, is a, it's a college band called Kitty's Mustache, and the whole point was that they were not a good band. But so the, this band had this one song, Mistress of Myself, that became this like feminist anthem, sort of like 90s, like Kathleen Hanna, like kind of song. Um, and I thought, okay, well, I have to write a song that in the reality of the book then goes on to become this enormous hit that like lasts for decades, that becomes like a song that everyone knows, which was daunting, but I decided that I would write as little of the song as possible. So, so Mistress of Myself, it comes from a line from Sense and Sensibility, where, if you've seen the movie, so you know the part where <laughs> Emma Thompson is really nervous because she thinks... Who is it? Hugh. Hugh Grant uh, has fallen in love with somebody else. And then she's like, oh, God, and she's freaking out. And then he comes back in. And it turns out he's not married, and he loves her, and it's okay. So in that point, in the novel, her character, Eleanor Dashwood, says, I will be calm. I will be mistress of myself. And I thought, yeah, like, that's it. That's like a, a woman in control of her emotions. So the, the whole song is, I will be calm, 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 calm. That's all I wrote. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, but it's perfect. It's perfect because that's all I had to write, uh, which meant that anyone reading the book could imagine whatever they wanted. And if I'd tried to write more of the song, 
then someone could read it and say, well, that's a terrible song. No one would listen to the song. That song would not live on for 20 years. Nobody would care about that song. Yeah, so that, that's how I got away with writing a hit song. That I was met. very smart. So you sort of used the negative space. Choose your own adventure of songs. You set people on a course where they could discover whatever song they wanted. Very, yes. very smart. Thank Emma you. Straub, ladies and gentlemen. Her new book Thank is you. Modern Lovers. This week's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market. This Thanksgiving, why do it all? Spend less time in the kitchen and more time with the family. Unless avoiding that one uncle makes the holidays easier. We're not judging. More info at WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Live Wire Radio coming to you this week as part of the Wordstock Festival here in Portland. Our theme is Rolling the Dice, and we ask the crowd here at the Aladdin Theater, uh, what's the most foolish risk you've ever taken? They've shared their stories with us. Uh, Todd said, the most foolish risk he'd ever taken, standing before my psychology class in high school, I intentionally wet my pants. In order to achieve an A on the final, the assignment for the final was to embarrass yourself and the grade corresponded to the level of risk. What's higher than an A then? (laughs) Uh, and then Todd clarifies, it was 1981 and it was in San Clemente. It's, I, oh, I, then that explains yeah, everything. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Wow. Lindsay, who's here, says the most foolish risk she ever took. I drove the getaway car, which was a 75 Dodge Dart, after my high school boyfriend ran into a pet shop and stole a snake. <laughs> Snakes yeah. are expensive. Yeah, that checks out. You want to yeah. do that. You got to make sure you don't get a snake that has a dye pack in it, though, because yeah, then yeah, that will. And you need a good wheel man, so that's. Yeah. Uh, and Ava says the most foolish risk uh, she's ever taken: going someplace I'd never been before with only 15% battery on my smartphone. Wow. <laughs> American hero, Ava. Truly terrifying. This is Livewire Radio. We're coming to you this week as part of Portland's Wordstock Festival, and so it's only fitting that our musical guest, Blitzen Trapper, just wrapped up a tour they were calling the Blitzen Trapper Songbook. Each show featured music and storytelling. Their most recent album, All Across This Land, is available in iTunes and at a record store near you. Please welcome Portland's own Blitzen Trapper to Livewire. Hello, Blitzen Trapper. Hello. What's happening? I'm so excited about the song that you are about to perform because I heard you in the green room warming up. I'll actually tell you what happened. You were warming up in the green room, the three of you, and me and two of the authors on this show all looked at each other and said, we have no talent to offer the world. (laughs) That was the actual backstage reaction to the song that you are about to play, which is what exactly? Please explain. Well, okay, we're going to do, this is a medley of songs, cover songs from our high school days. Uh, sort of mushed together into one song. All right, here we go. This is Blitz and Trapper on Livewire. I seem to recognize your face. Haunting familiar years, I can't seem to. Cannot find a candle of thought to light your name. 
catching up with me.
In minds, in this world, in disguise, and no one knows. Hides the face, lies the snake, the surmise, disgrace, boiling heat, summer stench, in the sky, the sun is dead. Call my name through the creek. Black old sun, won't you come and wash away the rain? Black old sun, won't you come, won't you come? Black old sun, won't you come and wash away the rain? Black old sun, won't you come? There you go. <laughs> That's Blitz and Trapper right here on Livewire Radio. Hey. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even tropical unalaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. All right. Our theme this hour is rolling the dice, something very familiar to Alexander Bruno. He's the main character in Jonathan Lethem's new book. Bruno is an international backgammon hustler, but he's also got fading looks and some serious medical problems. On the plus side, he might be psychic, which, you know, could really come in handy when you're a professional gambler. Lethem's other books include Motherless Brooklyn and Fortress of Solitude. His latest is A Gambler's Anatomy. Please welcome Jonathan Lethem to Livewire. I loved this book. Thank you. I think I had a particular interest in it because I do love gambling, but this book revolves around backgammon, and it's very, very detailed in parts. I'm wondering, like, what was your relationship with backgammon before you started writing this book? Well, I played a lot of backgammon as a teenager, not for money. I didn't, I didn't gamble for money when I was, when I was young, but I, I learned to spend long, abject afternoons, you know, playing backgammon with my friend Joel, and then I rediscovered it later, and I realized it, it, it had always haunted me. There's something about the pattern of the game, and it's like an afterthought. It's that game that's inside your chessboard, and you kind of look at it, and you're like, what's that? I don't know. Close it, quick. <laughs> and everyone has it I've all... never been afraid of it, personally, but <laughs> it might be different where you grew up. It turns out backgammon is one of the oldest games in the world. It, it goes back to Mesopotamia, and yet it had this association in my mind anyway, which I think, I think is borne out from talking to other people about it, it sort of a, feels like it has this slightly tawdry 1970s quality to it. Like you might see an open backgammon 
set with a very interesting problem on it, you know, at, at the Playboy Mansion in front of a roaring fire, you know, where two men are sitting, squinting at it with, you know, glasses of amber fluid in their hand. Yeah. And so I like the way it sort of, it, it kind of belonged to no one. It was just the sort of extra game. Right. I don't know which version of the Playboy Mansion you've been going to, but <laughs> I swear the back M is not the main draw. It's been a while since I've, you know, yeah, stopped in. So you, you knew how to play from your teenage years, but then did you have to go back in and do some research? Because, like, you write about this masterfully. You write about it well, like a person who has been in smoky back rooms in Singapore and really knows it. No, I, I played a lot of online backgammon. And, you know, I, I play it in my kids' bedroom while they were falling asleep because I could do it on my computer. <laughs> and... Um, and you, you can play uh, live opponents who you can infuriate long distance by beating them, or you can lose to the, to, the, to the computer program constantly, which I did constantly. And so I sharpened up my game just to the point where I can, uh, you know, aggravate anyone human now. Uh, but through I, your style of play, but not through, like, is there a chat function? Can you talk to people no, while you're playing? No, there's no taunting in, in online backgammon. That is good, because there is definitely taunting in online poker, which is one of the reasons I had to ban myself from it, which is harder than it sounds, for the record. You click on a button, and then the website says, are you serious? And then you click on that button, and they're like, okay, now this one, if you click this, you are really banned from the website. Part of it was because I would get into these arguments with people where I don't know why I'm admitting this on the radio and in front of you who I've just met, Jonathan, but sometimes I would look up the average home price in a city where the person reported being from to just be like, I could buy your entire town with my stack right now. I'm not saying it's a good story that reflects on me well. I'm saying this is why I had to stop. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's get back to your amazing new book, A Gambler's Anatomy. How, how did this book start out for you? Well, I've always loved gambling stories. I mean, I love uh, films like the uh, Paul Newman pool movie, The Hustler, and, and, the, and the book that it's based on is, is wonderful, too, uh, the, uh, by Walter Tevis, and uh, there's a French film about a, a doomed Baccarat player called Bob Le Flambeur. Really great black and white film noir, and I just sort of always wanted to, to write about one of these characters, these figures, like you online. Uh, yes. Doom. Very glamorous. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Acquitting themselves, very elegant, very yeah. European. Yeah, but really, my character is a, he's living in a, in a fantasy. He's kind of tall and handsome and, and Enigmatic, and he he pretends to be an international figure of, you know, uh, luxury and romance. It's but it's sort of sort of all in his head, and the book is about the way that illusion is stripped away. I love how you describe Alexander Bruno, kind of talking about him as a, a his ruined glamour. You say, I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, from your new book. The flesh only tightened over Bruno's chin in the old familiar way if he thrust his jaw forward and tilted his head back slightly. A pose he'd recognized as definitive of middle-aged vanity, he caught himself at it frequently. And my thought when I read that was, have you been following me, Jonathan Lethem? <laughs> I do that move all the time. Do you do that? Like, how do you have that thought in your mind unless you have personally experienced it? Well, you know... What I do when I'm not taunting people online about how I can buy their hometowns yes. is I, I, I watch them very closely. And so you, you've observed this in other people. Yeah. yeah. 
I just thought it was like a, it was a perfect note. That was for me maybe in the book the first time that I started to realize that, as you say, this character who you start off very envious of as the reader is he's not what we think he is and he's not even what he thinks he is. Well, the thing about gambling is that it's just an exaggeration of the situation that life presents, which is that we're all, you know, playing against the house, right? We're all going down the same slippery slope to doom. I'm sorry. Is this the first you've heard? Yes. <laughs> this is coming as quite a shock, Jonathan. It's probably why you brought me here. You needed yeah. to hear this tonight. Yes. Um, I, uh, I, the character of Alexander Bruno thinks he's psychic, but he, what, from what I could tell, he's more like a reverse psychic in that other people can read his thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a kind of a, a, a fondness for uh, superpowers that don't work. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's, he's, yeah, it's sort of like the, 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 the guy who's invisible only when no one's looking. Um, <laughs> or, you know, I, I wrote a whole book about, about a magic ring that doesn't help you. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, we have Jonathan Leatham here. His latest book is A Gambler's Anatomy. Are you a, a gambler at all? I mean, do you do that for fun? or? Actually, I, I play poker, but I play poker with college professors. And those dudes are so... You can, you can push them out with a 50-cent raise. <laughs> Next thing you know, they're in the kitchen getting another beer, you know? <laughs> so... Um, it's, it's, really not, it's really not gambling by your standards, I think. Well... I'm just gambling with my dignity when I go online, which is a whole other thing. Um, at the end of this book, you thank a long list of doctors, like, <laughs> yeah. a, like a really long list of doctors, because one of the things that happens to the main character is he has this huge medical problem. Right. Were those doctors that like, advised you on, on the medical jargon? Well, this is a, actually a chance to come clean and, and, and admit something, which is that they're not all doctors, really. I what? just... The, f <laughs> the first, I think there's um, eight names on the list, and the first three are doctors that advise me on the, on the medical aspects of the book. The fourth is just an English professor who has a PhD. And then... Whoa, 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 Jonathan. We're at a literary <laughs> festival. If you start talking PhDs, <laughs> this place is going to empty. Yeah. Um, Look at now they're they're heckling us. Yeah, I've never been heckled by a PhD yeah. in medieval literature before. <laughs> it's terrifying. So, once I had the excuse to to thank four doctors, and I had these other or five of them were doctors, and the other three names they looked kind of bare. So I put doctor in front of <laughs> the other three names. The last doctor is actually my wife. <laughs> um, so there is. So, along with the really detailed writing about backgammon, by the way, we have Jonathan Leatham here. His latest book is A Gambler's Anatomy. Um, there's a, a lot of really detailed writing about this particular surgical procedure that this character has. And um, I think someone just clapped for surgical procedures, which <laughs> I appreciate the enthusiasm. Um, did you... It's a pretty gruesome procedure that's being performed in the book. Did you watch one of these? Did you observe a live version of this? Um, I, I read a lot of accounts of those surgeries, and I looked at some pretty 
gory YouTube videos. <laughs> and, and, and also just, um, I mean, there are medical journals with lots of photographs you don't really want to have to look at. But I, I went there for you. You don't have to do it. How big of a deal is that to you to get the granular details of this kind of stuff right? In, in this case, it was really important to the, the, the book, which was meant to contain a kind of a passage or, I, I guess, an ordeal, something that you and the character would go through that would kind of change everything irrevocably. So it couldn't just be a kind of, you know, offstage, and then he went and had the surgery. I had to really make you feel that something had changed. Well, it was riveting and slightly revolting, but ultimately interesting. If Thank you need you. me to blurb your next book, That's perfect. I, I'm happy to. It's, it's on there now, yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Lethem, everyone. The book is A Gambler's Anatomy. This week's show is brought to you in part by Amtrak, offering a full-service dining car and scenic views on the Coast Starlight to Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles, connecting travelers to more than 500 destinations across America. See where the train can take you. More information at Amtrak.com. All right, our theme this week is rolling the dice, and we were asking the audience here at the Aladdin Theater, what's the most foolish risk you've ever taken. Jim says the most foolish risk he'd ever taken. In Iraq in 2007, I was an army platoon leader. During an ambush near Kuba, Iraq, my guys were shooting at two enemy combatants and I couldn't see what was going on. I stuck my head up. And then Jim, being very breezy about it, writes parenthetically, like a whack-a-mole. <laughs> I put my head up to see uh, what was going on, and two bullets passed on each side of my head. Uh. And then, continuing with the breezy theme, Jim writes, Curiosity killed the cat, but I'm okay. Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Jim seems to be taking this pretty well. He's taking I would, it really well. You would never see me again if yeah, I had been through that. It's all downhill. He, oh, speaking of... Uh, that's a great segue to our next one, Jason. Uh, listener Karen uh, says, the most foolish risk she's ever taken, riding my bike on the Washington, D.C. Beltway oh, by accident. How you... do you... What? By accident? Took a okay. wrong turn. Was it a peyote accident? <laughs> accident? That's the Santa Fe Beltway. That is exactly... I, I've been on that one before. <laughs> and... Uh, Amalia said the most foolish risk that uh, she's ever taken, starting college in Texas in an election year. Wow. Our thoughts and prayers wow. are with Amalia wow. right now. All right. This week's show is, in fact, part of Wordstock Portland's Book Festival, and our next guest wrote one of my favorite books of the year. Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman, explores Lindy West's life as a lady who dares to go on the internet and get ready for this, say the stuff that she thinks. In the book, Lindy details doings with trolls, body shamers, and her actual former boss who once trolled her with body shaming in the pages of the newspaper they both worked for. Please welcome the amazing Lindy West to Livewire. 
Lindy, welcome back to Livewire. Thanks for having me. I don't know if it was two or three years ago, you and I were talking about how we should totally write some books. Uh, at, well, yeah, you emailed me and you were like, I'm thinking about writing a book. And I was like, I'm gonna start working on a book. We should get together. And then you never wrote me back. <laughs> well, there was like a Seahawk game on, yeah. and I got distracted, and then I turned around, and then you wrote the book, yeah. and it's amazing. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> no thanks to you. Um, has the success of this book changed your life? Yeah. I, I, everything uh, in my house is made of gold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't have, like, a real job anymore. I just... Um, go around and talk to people about the book. I sit on planes, and I sit in hotels, and I'm alone. <laughs> it's actually... That sounds terrible. It's kind of terrible. I do, I do nothing except sit and move to another city and then sit. But then hug people who are nice. Like, I, I'm not complaining. It's amazing. But um, it's weird. It's a weird new life. Like, I'm, like, starting to be like, oh, I need money again. Like, I should, I guess I, my job now is I write another book. Wait, you already burned through all the money from no. this book? Because, like, no. the book is super popular. Well, thank you. Uh, it's doing fine. But I just mean, like, uh, like, if I use all the money, then there's no more money. <laughs> and Whoa, it, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Slow down, Econ 101. <laughs> I know. And also... If, you, if, if I use all the money and I don't put some of the money over here, then my, mo my mother will end me. Right. Which is weird because I'm 34 years old, but like I just still have that kind of mom who is in charge. <laughs> <laughs> so. I guess I'm just wondering about this because like, you've been a great writer for a long time. You've written for Jezebel and The Guardian, The Stranger in Seattle. But I, I would imagine that at some point the, the goal is to write a book, have it be really successful, and have your job to be a writer of books. Other than the crushing loneliness, does it feel, does it feel like you thought it was going to feel? Yeah, it's great, actually. It's, like, better, even. Because I didn't really even understand that that's what was going to happen, that you, you write a book, and then you do maybe hopefully a good job, and then they're like, yeah, you can write another one, like, whenever you're ready. But, yeah, so it, it feels really good. It feels like... Um, relaxing and also stressful at the same time. Like, because I can, I can get up whenever. I, I have to write one column a week, which I'm like, ugh, <laughs> like every time. Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like as humans, we will do as much work as we have to do or as little work, and it will feel the exact same. I know. It really, really does. Once a week, I have to, like, just, and it's not even, it's like, whatever I want, just my opinion on something that's happening. And I'm like, oh, I'm, oh my God, this is the, this is the one. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh. I was at the hotel earlier today, and I was talking to my wife, and I said, you know, last night I was, was driving by the Mexican restaurant by our house, and I just saw these people going in, and they just like, they just have normal jobs. They just go in, and then like the game's on, and they go in, they eat some nachos, and they watch the game. I just want that life. And she looked at me, she said, what are you talking about? 
Like, you would fail miserably at having a normal job, and you totally have the best job you could imagine, which yeah. is true, but anything you do for your job somehow starts to feel like a job. Because it's a job. I think that's, yeah. that's the key. I mean, you could go eat nachos at any time of the day. I really you, could. You, but you don't have the satisfaction of having done something horrible for nine <laughs> hours. Right. The nachos aren't the thing keeping me alive. Yeah. Which is what I miss about not having a You a know what it job. is? You don't deserve the nachos. No, I don't. You couldn't be more right. That is exactly right. My life is a farce. And so, like, when Fred Flintstone slides down that dinosaur, it's because he worked his... I'm trying to make butt into a rock joke. Because, uh, you know, everything was like Mr. Slate Rock. No, and I know. He, he worked his... Um, his, his boulders. Sure, good. Good job, Livewire audience. He worked his boulders off, and so when he slides down that dinosaur, he earned it. He earned it. When I slide down that dinosaur, I recorded a podcast. Yeah. That I is know. not real work. But, no. Yeah, I was yeah. actually going to defend you because I was going to be like, I was going to be like, but I'm really impressed that like, you read all the books of the people. But like, it's fun to read books. It really was. <laughs> and know? actually, to be honest with you, the, the books on this particular episode of the show were all a joy to read, including your book, Lindy. Thanks. Shrill, I know that you are a, a reader of fantasy books. Yeah. Is that what a you, genre that you would ever consider uh, writing? I consider it every day. I think about it all the time. But I've never written a novel. I don't write fiction. So I'm afraid. I'm frightened. I feel like you would be so good at it. Thank you. We should form a, a club and try to write a fantasy book together. I'll call I'm you in four years. I'm not falling for that again. <laughs> um, no, I, I actually think about it all the time. Except, that, like, I, I have this thing where it's so hard not to be derivative. Like, I know how to write about my own life because I know that it's just, it's just uh, unique. Because, right. you know, everyone is like a butterfly. But... To, when I start to think about, like, okay, what if I wrote a fantasy novel? I'm like, I just think of, like, one that I like. And I'm like, I would, that would be a good... I should do that. Right. And I'm like, well, that's already one. Like, I do the same thing when I hear, like, a cool song. I'm like, I could write a cool pop song. It should, like... Someone should just, like, make that, like, a song. But it's already a... It's already an Ariana Grande song yeah. that you just And it's heard. not even like I, I think that I made it up. It's like I hear it and I'm like, yeah, that's a good hook. I should make that into a song. <laughs> Never mind. I don't know. I just feel like I, sometimes I'm afraid that I don't actually have a creative brain at all. <laughs> by the way, we have Lindy West here. This is Livewire Radio, her latest book. And by that I mean first book is Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman. We're going to come back in just a moment. This is Livewire Radio. We're coming to you from the Aladdin Theater. We're at the Wordstock Festival. Back in a moment. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot. Ergo Depot is the place to go for all kinds of amazing, imaginative, ergonomic furniture for your home, for your office. I use a Jarvis desk from Ergo Depot when I do the Livewire radio show. When I'm standing there on stage, I have got a Jarvis desk. And I'll tell you what, it makes my job a lot easier. And it's going to make your life a lot better. Don't buy into this notion that just because we all grew up and got quote-unquote real jobs, we got to sit at a desk all day and let our body just go to pieces. No, you can sit, you can stand, you can move, you can 
Stay in touch with your physical body even when you're at work by using the amazing products that the folks at Ergo Depot have designed and that they sell. You can go into the store in Portland or you can check out their website, which is ergodepot.com to learn more. Welcome back to Livewire Radio. We're coming to you as part of the Wordstock Book Festival here in Portland. We have Lindy West here, her new book. Well, how, how old is the book at this point? It came out on May 17th, Norwegian Constitution Day. That's how most people remember it. <laughs> yeah. Her uh, latest book is Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman. And I was, I was asking you uh, before the break uh, if you'd ever consider writing a, a fantasy book. And the reason is because your current line of work and, and really a lot of the essays that are in Shrill uh, put you in the direct firing line of a lot of people on the internet who say mean things. And I just wonder if there's a point for you where you want to just like take a step back from that, take a time out, write some fantasy, maybe write a, a travel guide to Italy. Do something that's not battling people on the internet all the time. Yeah, I, I reside permanently within that moment where I want that. <laughs> I want to never be on the internet ever again with every cell in my body. <laughs> well, okay, so then what's your daily life interacting with the internet look like these days? I mean, I have... I guess I still... I want to be like, I don't. Like, I'm very moderate, and I, I don't know, but um, I, I don't engage with people on the level that I used to. Because I just, not because I decided that it's bad. I still think everyone should just do whatever they want. I don't think feeding trolls are not feeding trolls. I don't think there's a rule. I think that I just want to do whatever makes me feel good. Um, which is probably not a great, actually a great way to live your you life. Know, sadly, the trolls are also pursuing that life I know. goal. <laughs> I know. If you think about it. Right, but I'm just like, why should I prioritize their feelings over my feelings? Right. I don't care how they feel. I don't care if they feel validated by my attention. I, I don't care about them. Right. So if, if making fun of them makes me feel great, then I do that. So I used to do that a lot, and now I do it less and less all the time. But there's still, you know, it's so hard because there's this machine that's like gossiping about you 24 hours a day. And you can just go look at it and see what the people say. You know? It's great. Yeah. And so, like, how are you supposed to not look at it? Right. I look at it. There's also a lot of really nice people on the internet, and that's the main thing. That You know, every once in a while, I, I like, throw the computer against the wall, and I'm like, now that I'm rich because of my right. book. Against a gold-plated wall. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I just crumple it up and flush it down the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> that's so bad for the plumbing. Don't I, do that. Buy new plumbing. It's, yeah. it's fine. Um, <laughs> but, no, I... Uh, Sometimes I'm like, I make a big, like, florid announcement, like, I am quitting this world, and you, I'm going to be a hermit, and you will never find me. And then, like, really nice people send me messages, and they're like, please don't do that. Like, I need you, and you, you are, you make me feel less alone, and I, your internet presence means something to me. And then I'm like, ugh, fine. <laughs> I will stay. I will stay with you. So it's, it's the nice people that keep me around. I was reading the book and I was thinking about what a really good book it is because it speaks to people like me. I'm a, you know, white, straight, male. I'm uh, maybe not the person the book is written for, but it informs me about your life so much that I appreciate it. But then I also think, man, if I was somebody who uh, didn't conform to the typical body standards or was a woman who went on the internet, 
and had been subjected to the stuff that you've been subjected to, and I read this book, I would feel like you were saving my life. You must have incredibly emotional fans. Like, do people come up to you now, like, in restaurants and on the streets? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, and I love every single one of them. But, yeah, there's a lot of crying. It's really important to me, because it's such a personal book and it resonates with people so intensely, it's important to me to, like, give each person a moment and, like, really connect with them. And then the, the person is often, like, weeping and hugging. And, like, we have, like, a thing where we talk about, like, miscarriage or something, you know? And it's just, like, the most intense thing that goes on for many hours. And then I, and then I go to my hotel alone and sort of watch Forensic Files. Oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird life. West, can I get a high five on Forensic Files? Could you call them and have them make more? Because I've seen them all. Uh, I have The husband ins- did it, FYI. <laughs> 22 hours a day on HLN is Forensic Files. It is on in every hotel room in America, and it is amazing. Just for the hair alone from rural Saskatchewan in the mid-90s. So good. It's so good. I, like, and I love it so much that I, will, I, watch, I, I just watch it all the time, even though I've seen all of it. Like, this sounds weird, but is that sort of how you recharge? Like, after you've, I mean, really, you've talked to people, you've shared experiences with them, you've given a lot of yourself in these conversations, and then you go back to the hotel room, and you just kind of, like... I make my body flat and still, (laughs) and I just absorb, I just drink in murder (laughs) and dismemberment. You know, Lindy, it's interesting. I'd like to read you uh, what my final question was. I had, uh, I had written down here somewhere, I said, uh, I feel like every time we have you on this show, we end up talking about trolls and body shaming and stuff like that. Is there anything else you want to talk about? But I feel like we just did that. Forensic Files all day, anytime. If you want to do like a Forensic Files podcast <gasps> where we watch every episode of Forensic Files. That sounds like a million dollar idea. Yeah, it's also not a joke suggestion, just in case anyone thought this was just showbiz. I'm really asking. Okay. We, should, we should really do Let's that. Let's do it. Let's absolutely do it. Lindy right. West, ladies and gentlemen. Her book is Shrill. Notes from a Loud Woman. This week's show is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing and their flagship beer, Fat Tire. This is a glowing amber ale, bright with white lacing that finishes with a light, clean taste, making this the perfect beer to pair with people. Any people. More info at newbelgium.com. All right. Please, welcome back to the stage. Blitzen Trapper. Are we going to do a uh, song by one of my favorite songwriters, Gillian Welch? Drive to Atlanta 
Live out this fantasy Running around with the red top down Says I wanna do right now, right now and I'm around the shoulder It's a rich man on a soldier Mama starts pushing that wedding Thank you. That's Blitz and Trapper right here on Livewire Radio doing some Gillian Welch. Man. All right. That's it for our show this week. We got to tell you who helped make it possible. Thank you to our guests Lindy West, Jonathan Leatham, Emma Straub, and Blitz and Trapper. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors New Belgium Brewing. Whole Foods Market, Amtrak, Ergo Depot and Alaska Airlines, hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Special thanks to Amanda Bullock and all the folks from Wordstock. Robin Tenenbaum is our executive producer and the co-creator of Livewire. Laura Hatton is our producer and editor. She wrote for this week's show along with our announcer, Jason Rouse. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop and Carlson Audio. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing manager. Additional funding provided by the Meyer Memorial Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by our members. Special thanks this week to members Megan Woodard and Emily Pedersen. For more info about our show, go to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Public Radio International.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 